episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show, Slodja Redner, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, supervised by Jill Praisner, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, growing beyond limiting patterns and returning to your true self. Welcome to the show, Sledja. Hi, Noah. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? So my credentials are a licensed professional counselor associate. Uh, I'm supervised by Jill Praisner. And as far as my experience goes, uh, during my graduate school, I worked as a a crisis text line volunteer. Uh, During my internship, I worked at an agency and a nonprofit. um, And there I worked with a wide range uh, of ages and and people with different kinds of concerns. I also had um, a short period when I worked at a high school. And... Mm -hmm. That was really helpful because I realized I don't want to work with teenagers. I want to work with adults. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of as far as my experience goes. And since finishing school, I worked in a private practice at Austin Counseling Center for over a year. And uh, most of my clients are adults in their twenties and thirties. Um, a lot of them uh, struggle with complex trauma and come from. Um, come to work on issues like self-esteem, negative self-image, overwhelm, um, being overly emotional, and they notice how that kind of gets in the way of the life that they want to live. Makes a lot of sense. And my understanding is you also do some life coaching as well. Yes, I also, in addition to individual psychotherapy, I offer life coaching. Um, and that's mainly for individuals who perhaps already been in therapy for some time and they process some uh, major life events and things that were maybe hurtful at some point. Um, and they come to the point of life where they maybe want more or they want to work on some specific goals. 
Um, so with that, I offer personal growth coaching and uh, creating healthy habits. Very cool. So now I know as an associate, you can't accept insurance. Um, once you become, once you get that full LPC, do you plan on accepting insurance? Um, if not, why not? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about this a little bit. Um, I'm still kind of like looking at what my options are and to, uh, I want to make sure that I'm making a good decision. Um, as of now, uh, something that doesn't really appeal to me is that uh, I have to diagnose people um, and that's not usually how I work currently. I don't um, really prescribe to any labels so much, uh, of course, unless client brings something in and that is meaningful to them. Um, so that's one, one piece of it, uh, but I haven't fully decided yet, so to be determined. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. It's uh, insurance, especially if you're a solo practitioner, can be uh, quite a bit of work on the side um, in terms of administrative time. Um, so uh, you currently practice out of um, Austin Counseling Center, correct? Yeah. And at Austin Counseling Center, do you accept a sliding scale or have reduced fee appointments available? So I do. Um, and most of my sliding scale spots are currently full, uh, but I do have a wait list, um, which I constantly update because things change all the time. Um, and I have a form that I ask people to, to fill out if they want a sliding scale, because sometimes maybe a spot that's easier to fill um, that usually I can't fill, maybe people can come into that time. Um, so that's an option as well. Um, so I would definitely encourage anyone who's looking for a sliding scale to fill out that form and get back to me. Um, and I also offer 30 minute sessions um, at, uh, and those are $75. And I find that that's actually uh, much, much more feasible financially for a lot of folks instead of full fee and it seems to be working great for them. So that's another option that I offer. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? I do. Um, I do have few um, evening appointments and I do have Saturdays as well. Okay, okay cool. Yeah. Um, now, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? So it is my first career. My first, uh, first uh, big girl job, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I had um, other jobs in the past. Uh, most of my life, I worked in the service industry. Uh, when I was about 21, uh, I left Serbia, my, my home country, uh, to work on a cruise ship. So I did that for several years, um, after which I moved to Austin. And then I also worked at the restaurant right up until grad school. And when I started grad school, I worked as a graduate research assistant. Um, so yeah, that's my experience very cool very cool cruise ships you know i've never been on a cruise ship they kind of terrify me i don't know why i feel like a lot of people go missing from cruise ships like that's <laughs> true but <laughs> it's true right <laughs> I, I i don't know many instances of that but i but i can see i think it's one of those things that people either love or hate that's that's what I keep hearing. Either it's too many people and people don't like this kind of crowd and noise, or it's just super exciting for them. So yeah, I guess maybe that. I watch too much true crime. <laughs> <laughs> that could be possible. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. It was fun. 
Yeah. I can imagine. I could see that being a ton of fun to work on a cruise ship, though. It is. It is, especially when you're at that age, when you kind of like uh, trying to travel. Um, I mean, I definitely visited so many places that I don't think I ever would otherwise if I didn't right. on a cruise ship. Um, That's really cool. All over the world. It's, it's super fun. Yeah. So, you know, after the cruise ship and the service industry, what is it that drew you to being a therapist? So I think it's one of those kind of looking back, there are a few points that, that I can tell pointed me to this, to this mm -hmm. uh, time in my life. Um, it was something that I kind of feel like chose me. Uh, but let's say one, one big point of that is, is my personality. I always liked one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations, more kind of deeper conversations. Um, I was always kind of like a thinker and a dreamer, always interested in the internal world um, and how, how, let's say, someone who'd been through difficult circumstances uh, gets to really overcome that. That was something that, that was always fascinating to me. Um, so I think that's one part of it. Um, another part of it is just my upbringing, um, going through my own stuff and, and um, being in my family of origin, kind of having to be almost like a little therapist. Um, so learning really from young age to be more kind of attuned to others and, and mm -hmm. in a sense, taking care of adults. Uh, so that was also um, a big part of it. Um, and there's this interesting point. Um, I have this book. Have you heard of this book, uh, The Road Less Traveled? Uh-uh. So um, it's, it's this a psychiatrist uh, who wrote the book. And it's, it's essentially kind of like, a, almost like Irvin Yalom books. It's very much mm -hmm. what happens in the therapy session. So I started reading that book. I think I was about 15. And I, that was the first time when I learned that there's a job in which you sit with people and you engage in deep conversations. And that was so fascinating to me. And I think that was the first kind of window into there's a job in which I can do this, kind of be myself and, and really engage with people on a deeper level. Um, so that kind of all of those little things fit together. Um, and I and I had this kind of sense moving through life that that's what I wanted to do. I did feel very lost most of my kind of young adulthood life. Um, but when I moved to Austin, I finally kind of felt like, okay, this is my opportunity. This is my chance. I always wanted to go back to school um, and study psychology. Um, and just kind of also working through my own stuff. Um, really noticing that even as I was moving through life and, and got through different circumstances, I kept repeating same things. Like there was something about it. I kept doing things that were kind of keeping me stuck. Um, so really just kind of being curious about it and wanting to work through that. Um, so mm -hmm. then I had to get my um, um, psychology, uh, bachelor's in psychology at UT, and then just kind of naturally made sense to get my master's. At that point, I knew that I wanted to do this, be a therapist. Being a therapist is such a weird job, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it is, it is. Like oh. when you really think about it, it's so strange. We, we sit with people, we hold space for people. People tell us, you know, their deepest, darkest things, you know, and wow. it's just such an interesting job. Yeah, I, I definitely have those moments where I think, how is this my life? This is so right. great. Yeah. 
I, I get to talk to people about these things, especially when I hear something like I've never told this to anyone. Yeah, there's something really kind of human in that connection that we don't get to do on you know, a daily basis with other people that we just meet. So yeah. Right, right, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you listen to, pets? I mean, you know, give us some more info. Yeah. So I, I like kind of, I, I'm sure most of your uh, guests said the same stuff. I like going out, uh, spending time in nature. That really kind of fulfills me and energizes me. I love going to restaurants, happy hours, um, spending time with my dog and my husband. Uh, my husband is a musician, so I love to go out to his gigs, especially now that everything is kind of opening back up. Um, that's that's been super fun. We just kind of enjoy live music again. Um, I love trash TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know if it's trash TV, but I love uh, watching Bachelor in Paradise. That's one of my kind of guilty <laughs> pleasures, if you will. Um, I just love different shows on Netflix. I'm not really that person who will binge constantly. Um, but yeah, I do like to relax intentionally and just watch some, some shows that don't need uh, my brain power so much, I guess. Makes sense, given the work we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really needed. What's your dog's name? Rini. Her name is Rini. Uh, we adopted her, and that was her given name, which means uh, little bunny in Japanese, apparently. How cute. That's a cute yeah. name. Yeah. What kind of dog is she? She is a bull terrier. Okay, cute. Those are cute dogs. Yeah, one of those target dogs. Most people have that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. So in in the therapy that you do with your clients, what modalities do you find yourself drawing upon? Um, So recently I've completed uh, NARM training. And NARM is this model. I can tell you more about it uh, later. But um, it's really for working with complex trauma specifically. Uh, But even before I I got trained in NARM, I was really kind of like drawn towards these models that were kind of more in-depth, like psychodynamic and young Mm -hmm. men. Um, I like holistic view, um, always kind of thinking about how this person uh, lives their life in other kind of like aspects. Uh, really taking that full person approach. Um, so yeah, that's kind of more so, but, but my basic, um, my basis is NARM. And, and okay. I kind of like heavily draw from that. Well, you know, NARM is a question I was going to ask you later, but feels like it might fit, be fitting to ask now. Can you, what is NARM? Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, I, I hope I'm going to do a good job here because NARM is super complex um, it has a lot of theory behind it, but it's really uh, developed to work with uh, individuals who had complex trauma, so who, who come from that chronic misattunement um, and not getting their needs met. Um, so NARM really works with those uh, patterns that we develop from that trauma that kind of limit us in the present moment. Um, so essentially people who who almost like work from from like a child consciousness that's what we call it in arm but essentially like you're like you're moving through life from that wounded child perspective um and that really helps individuals expand their capacity for joy 
for excitement, for compassion and creativity. Um, and what I really like about it, it's really kind of focused on the human potential in working in the present moment, um, in, in orienting the person to towards what's already working, towards their natural capacity for growth and healing. Um, and I also love that it doesn't really uh, forces individuals to come to any specific state. It's really working with the person as they are in that moment. It's really, it really kind of humanizing in that way um, and based on clients' uh, autonomy and choices. Mm -hmm. Now, what does NARM stand for? Oh yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's probably important to mention. A neuroaffective relational model. Okay. What yeah. would be an example of like an intervention that's based in NARM that you might do in session, like a, a specific like question or like way of doing things that would be reflective of that model? The one thing that comes to mind, um, we, would, we would look for moments of connection and disconnection. So one uh, really basic example, we work with um, checking in with clients, what is it that they want for themselves? So with tracking this connection and disconnection, client will usually name something they want for themselves. Let's say that's more peace or more capacity to be connected to themselves and others. And you can almost immediately notice that they would either say something or bring themselves out of that. It's almost like they would create that that's impossible for them to have. Um, let's, say, let's say for me right now, I'm gonna give you an example that, that kind of works for me, it's pretty recent. When I, uh, when I wrote to you about being on this podcast, that was something I wanted for myself. But as soon as I said yes, I could notice that my patterns came up, right? I was like, will I be able to do this? How I'm going to present myself? So all of these kind of like almost like insecurities, things that, uh, things that would prevent me, let's say in the past, that, that would come up. So that's that disconnection. I connect to what I want for myself. And immediately this pattern that, that kind of kept me safe would come in to tell me, don't do this. You shouldn't be doing this, right? But it's coming from that child consciousness, from that adaptation. It's not what I really want for myself right now as an adult. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that would be a really helpful way to approach like resistance in therapy, for example. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so in NARM, we speak a lot about... Um, let's say somebody would find themselves struggling with a client who keeps coming to therapy, but they don't quote unquote work on things that they want for themselves, right? So there's this piece of them that keeps pulling toward, they want to heal, they want a better life for themselves, but there's this other piece that's scared of that, the other part of them that's scared of that. So yeah, that's that kind of resistance, this old patterns kind of keep pulling us, right? To, to, to stay in what we know and what's familiar, even if it's no longer working for us. So basically what I'm hearing is that that resistance is like an ad adaptational strategy to previous traumas that kept us self safe. I mean. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. We actually call them uh, these survival styles. We learn how to adapt in ways that help us navigate through our early environment. 
and we essentially carry these things into adulthood but then we find ourselves struggling because they feel constricting these patterns these adaptations feel so constricting and prevent us from kind of growing and healing right so they worked for us at one point in our life but since we've grown and changed and now we're adults they no longer serve us a, a healthy purpose yeah yeah that's exactly it and I think that talking about NARM first was good in this example here in, in this podcast, because I mean, what we're talking about today is growing beyond limiting patterns and returning to your true self, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that's important to have said, because I think it kind of sets the stage for what we're about to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, you gave some good examples, but can you give some additional examples of what uh, a limiting pattern might look like for somebody? Yeah, so limiting pattern, uh, the way I see it, it's really anything that kind of keeps us stuck, that keeps us uh, kind of constricted. Uh, so it can be um, any rigid beliefs that we have about ourselves, identities, things that we uh, kind of take ourselves to be, who we take ourselves to be, uh, but it, it um, again, feels limiting, doesn't feel like it reflects who we are today, or it can be any triggers that we don't work through. Um, again, identities, feelings, or any actions and behaviors that we find ourselves constantly doing, almost like on repeat from this uh, kind of like automatic place, uh, but they don't help with what we want for ourselves in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I see those uh, patterns. It can be self-judgment, people-pleasing, self-sabotaging, self-hatred, self-criticism. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So how do we develop these sorts of limiting patterns? So one thing that really kind of helps me when I think of this, uh, there's this quote uh, by Deepak Chopra that I love. And it says, uh, we turn our worst experiences into rules about life. So when something uh, keeps happening at our early age, we kind of create these adaptations, as you mentioned earlier. Um, And really kind of, we we learn who we need to be in that environment. But it's it's this false self, in a sense. It's not who we really are. Um, So constantly being uh, criticized or feeling like we have to achieve in order to be loved and accepted, uh, being rejected or having emotional neglect, not having our needs met. Um, So really all of that kind of complex trauma. Um, And it's not necessarily that it has to be one big event that's really uh, traumatic, but all of these ways in which we're constantly uh, being misattuned from our caregivers when our needs are not met. Or, or caretaking of a, a parent. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because we have to be uh, a parent in that role. We can't be a child. We can't fully uh, kind of have that development as we, as we should have as kids. So anything which would, to- Yeah, what, which I was just going to say affects our attunement. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say that anything that really gets in the way of that natural development and growth that we're supposed to have. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Now, what is the relationship between our thinking and self-limiting patterns? So the way I see it, uh, thinking is just one 
the way in which these patterns are expressed. Um, I think there's a, a big, um, big connection there. Uh, so it is one of one of the ways in which it's expressed, but it's not the only the only one. Uh, but I think there's a big um, kind of push. We see a lot to change your thoughts, change your life. Uh, but sometimes that doesn't really work. It, it's kind of like uh, repeating affirmation that you don't believe. It does. It's not really connecting to anything internally. It doesn't create any feelings that that feel good. Um, so really, kind of even with NARM, we're looking to embody what we really want for ourselves instead of just repeating, kind of having these thoughts. Uh, but it is it is huge. But I think it's just one piece of it. So yeah. Yeah, I, I think that it, when it comes to the relationship between our thinking and self-limiting patterns, I think it's a way that we reinforce those patterns, right? We reinforce that thinking, we reinforce um, the ways we were taught to think about ourselves, right? Which in some ways keeps us stuck, right? So I think if we can like free ourselves of that thinking, that leaves that leaves like what you were saying, like the, the origin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to get rid of that thinking when it's hard to believe the alternative, right? Right, right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. We do reinforce with that. Um, it's just that we, these thoughts are expression of the deeply seated beliefs. Right. Yeah, so when we kind of work with those beliefs, which come out as thoughts, and a lot of people, they're not really aware of what they're thinking. Right. They're kind of, which I think is the part of what you're saying about reinforcing, um, they speak of themselves in ways that are not fully true in a sense of like it's, it's keeping you stuck in that, like a story that we keep retelling, but it's a story of victimhood or that, that doesn't help us. And um, so, yeah, it, that's the kind of like reinforcing with our words and with our thoughts. Yeah. understanding what is it that I'm thinking about this and this is something that I kind of um, a question that I like to pose to my clients just kind of curiously observing what what are you thinking about this what are you telling yourself about this instead of like being fused with it right yeah and I think you know from a cognitive behavioral viewpoint what you're talking about is like our negative core beliefs about ourselves right yeah. um, the things that we deeply believe that we were taught to believe um, that are hard to shake because of so many repeated like reinforcements of that belief early on. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists will just look at the surface of those things, of the thinking and not really dive into the cause. You know what I mean? Um, And I think that, for a client being able to identify like, oh, holy shit, this is where this comes from mm-hmm. is really important in understanding that that thinking isn't inherent to who they are. Right, right. And that, that's kind of like when you start coming to th- that true self, that's kind of what I'm thinking about as well when I say that true self, not being so merged with it. When, right. we, when we have these thoughts, and like you said, when we keep repeating that we feel like this is who we are, this is a fact. But then in therapy, hopefully we slow down and we can kind of almost like distance ourselves a little bit and see ourselves thinking this. Right. And having a little distance and noticing, where did, when did I start believing this? 
because right, it is right. hard. It's not you. You were not born thinking uh, that you hate yourself and that you should criticize yourself. Um, so yeah, yeah. So how do these limiting patterns, in fact, limit us? What are some examples of that? So they limit us because they they um, get in the way of living the life the way we want, like living more fully and being authentic. Uh, that's something that I see a lot. I want something. I want to be me. I don't have to. I don't want to pretend anymore. But then we we keep kind of if we come from that uh, pattern, we come from that uh, place of the wounded child and feel like, but I need to be this way never noticing that we have a choice and we don't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so they kind of uh, limit us because they get in the way of, of living life in the way that we want right now. Um, and it's really, um, it kind of um, keeps us a little bit stuck because we constantly uh, uh, responding, responding to life. Uh, we're kind of reacting to these things from the place of childhood. We're not really slowing down to think, does this feel true for what I want right now? Uh, so they really feel constricting. So anything that we tell ourselves about ourselves, even something like a, like a silly example that I, that I think kind of helps is thinking of oneself as an introvert. I mean, I resonate with that. But if I use that to keep myself uh, from from living the life that I want, for example, when I can't do that because I'm an introvert, it's limiting me now. Now it's no longer helping me kind of thrive and, and grow in ways that I want to grow, but it's keeping me stuck. So really, I, I feel like anything that we tell ourselves that doesn't feel expansive and joyful um, and authentic. Yeah. And, and really, I see a lot of like with with clients, I see a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies with that sort of thinking too, like where the thing that you don't want to happen ends up happening because of the way that we think about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which we, is weird, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I noticed that a lot of times uh, we kind of create those, those worst fears that we have. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's so true. So why is it important to understand our patterns and how can we know if we're operating from the perspective of a limiting pattern? I think it's important to understand because um, unless we do, they're going to be just guiding us through life. We're just going to be going through life uh, reacting to things, reacting to people, uh, being triggered, um, not, not really seeing people for who they are, but but more of like coming from that place, uh, they remind me of someone, of course, this is subconscious, they remind me of someone, so now I'm just reacting to my, my perception of what's happening. Um, and I think uh, what could be helpful is just kind of noticing what's, what's this internal dialogue? What am I telling myself about this? What might be my worst fear if I speak up? That's something that we can we kind of create almost like a scenario in our mind, and we take that as a fact, and we then just like go with that, never really noticing that this is something that that's coming from inside of us. Um, and a, a lot of times, I, I've noticed that those patterns are fueled by thinking that there isn't generally like evidence for. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's fueled by thinking where it tends to be like, maybe it's all or nothing thinking. Maybe it's, um, maybe you're catastrophizing. Maybe you're minimizing something, you know? Um, it, it tends to come from like unbalanced thinking is my, my perspective. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that um, also comes a lot from having some past experience of it. But right. then taking one of those worst experiences and kind of expecting that, that it's going to happen again. And then, right. then kind of like going with that expectation and, and just like believing that it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know what? I think another important piece is like noticing how was this helpful in the past. Um, and really being curious about that because all of these these patterns were helpful at some point and they did help us survive essentially. So right. there's so much wisdom in them and that's why we don't want to dismiss it. And we can also use it to our advantage. It's just that we don't want to be guided by them. We don't want them to be in the driver's seat, but right. rather to use it kind of to our advantage. Like, is it, the, is it something that I want to utilize right now? Um, so really having that understanding of, of how it de- developed and how this was helpful at some point, I think that's, that's really helpful. So having the self-awareness to be like, oh, this is that thing I do, like, is that really going to be helpful in this situation? Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. And kind of once you start uh, knowing that this is your pattern, you can anticipate it. You can almost right. Tell yourself, and there, there's sometimes even humor about that. People can notice like, oh, yeah, this is what I do. This is what happens every time I stand up for myself or I, or I do this thing that I really want. So it becomes something that, that really you have more control over and becomes a choice. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So do you use NARM to work with these patterns? Uh, yes. Yes, um, NERM is uh, basically really helping with these patterns uh, because it does help with understanding of how, how this was helpful, how this developed. And a lot of this NERM theory, uh, we as clinicians, we're just kind of keeping the back of our mind. We're not right. labeling the person, we're not, uh, you know, limiting them in, in that kind of sense, but more we're coming from that curious. Um, inquiry and constantly trying to be curious about that. And I think uh, with doing that, the client becomes more curious about it. Instead of just judging themselves and criticizing themselves, they can almost see themselves more human and and have the curiosity, even outside of the therapy session. Right. And, Which kind of leads... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and also just constantly orienting to that, but right now, as an adult, how is this helpful? What is it that you want for yourself? And, and understanding that you do have that choice and orienting towards the, the parts of you that are organized and uh, that are functioning in this present moment. What, what would you say somebody, like say there's somebody out there who may be listening to this podcast who maybe can't afford to do therapy right now, but would like to kind of get started on some of this work within themselves, what would you recommend or what can they do outside of therapy to grow beyond these patterns? Mm -hmm. You know, I think there are so many different things people can do actually outside of therapy. Uh, One that I personally found really helpful 
um, is kind of creating rituals to connect to yourself, to take some time to be with yourself, to be curious, um, to have space for your thoughts, not, not in a sense that you want to overanalyze things or judge yourself. A lot of times when I say this to clients, they're like, well, I'm already analyzing. Right. It's not about analyzing yourself, but being curious. Um, again, that question of what am I telling myself about this? What am I really responding to? Is this something that's, that's present right now or am I responding to, to uh, something from a place of past or from that wounded child? Um, and with that, uh, there's so many things people can do. They can do journaling. They can just kind of take in some quiet time for themselves. It doesn't have to be a specific meditation or mindfulness, which is, of course, wonderful. But I think a lot of people get tripped up. They feel like it needs to be a specific way or they need to be good at it. Um, so just constantly grounding themselves in the present. And even like small moments throughout the day where you can just kind of notice I'm safe right now, of course, if you are safe. Um, just kind of noticing what's true for you right now. How, how do you want to be right now? What, what feels right to you? What feels authentic? Um, so kind of constantly inviting curiosity and compassion and, and that self-reflection, like I said. Now, my understanding is that you wrote a guided journal called Returning to Your True Self. What can you tell us about that? I did. Um, so this was my COVID passion project. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I was always interested in self-reflection and uh, journaling. That's something that I do on a regular basis for my own self-care. And I know how uh, therapeutic that was for me. Um, and also just kind of with self-reflection, I think it's really important outside of therapy. And it's super easy for people to do just to keep connecting to themselves um, so this journal was essentially just kind of product of all of that that worked for me. Um, so it has uh, different topics that people can kind of reflect on, has a little introduction on each topic uh, where people can learn why, why that's important. Um, for example, topic of true self or personal freedom. And after that, I offer a few questions for reflection. And I think questions are so important because sometimes asking the right question can already give you an answer. For sure. It's, yeah, I, I love good questions. And um, so that's why I kind of developed this because I think it really helps people kind of go beyond that what's already available to them, what they think about themselves every day, kind of like beyond those thoughts that we keep recycling that lead to nowhere. Um, and then on the bottom of each, uh, each of these topics, I offer a few kind of anchor thoughts that people can kind of practice throughout the day, um, or they can always adapt to what feels true. If any of this doesn't really kind of resonate with them, they can create their own. Um, so yeah, that's, that's about my journal. And people can check that out on my website if they're interested. Awesome. So your website, and is it on Amazon as well? Uh, it is, it's on uh, Kindle on Amazon. So this is currently uh, just a digital copy. Uh, so people can kind of have their own journal ready and read it um, on their computers and kind of like journal from there. But I'm also currently working on having this printed. Um, so I hope nice. that I have a printed version. Yeah, yeah, I'm super That's excited. That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited. 
And, you know, you mentioned, and you've mentioned several times as we've talked today, you've mentioned curiosity. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that curiosity is so important, not just um, as like in being a person and, you know, being curious about ourselves and, and the world, but I think it's an especially important like trait of a therapist, right? Because curiosity is what leads us to asking the right question, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I, I just think it's so important. I think so too. That, that always comes to mind when I think of who do I want to be as a therapist, how I want to show up with my clients. I think curiosity is the most important thing. It doesn't put puts us in that place of, I already know, I'm going to fix you, or uh, let me tell you about you. Um, but it's really kind of inviting that. And, and kind of like I said earlier, the more we do that with our clients, and we kind of uh, inquire about that instead of assuming uh, and labeling, uh, clients get to do that outside of therapy sessions. Right. They, they do that themselves constantly. I kind of internalize that. So I, I totally agree. I think that's super important. Awesome. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit to uh, you as a therapist, and thank you for the beautiful um, information that you provided today about limiting patterns. Um, so back to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Mm -hmm. um, some of my experience with, uh, with those populations is around uh, first and second generation immigrants. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of drawn to me because I'm in that category as well. Um, and I also find often that uh, people who are kids of immigrants, they, they struggle a lot uh, because they almost like live in two different worlds. And that brings uh, a lot of that kind of like, again, complex trauma a lot of right. time. Um, so that's something that I work with a lot. And with other populations, I don't have as much experience, uh, but I'm trying to be open and keep learning. It's not that I'm really closing myself off from working uh, with those people. It's just that uh, currently I've been kind of focusing more on uh, trauma. And um, yeah, that's, that's who is kind of drawn towards me at this point. Okay, cool. Um, I know a lot of people will, you know, make an appointment and then sometimes that appointment can be, you know, a month out or so. And they're just anxiously anticipating meeting with you for the first time. So to try and help with some of that anxiety that a new client can experience, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think this really depends, um, at least from my perspective, how much I already know about the client. Um, so, you know, some clients, when they reach out, they, even in that initial email, they offer a lot of things already, um, and sometimes not that much. So, um, in that, I usually have an um, initial consultation with them before we even decide to work together, just so we can see if it's a good fit, if I can really help with what they're looking for. Um, so, it really depends on that, um, and I always like to check in, really, what does the client want, where they are in their journey. 
some people kind of come to therapy not really being sure what's not working. Um, some people are very therapy savvy and they know exactly what they want, what they want to work on and what they expect from therapy. Um, so really depends, but kind of like, um, I, I always like to check in with clients and this is very like along with NARM. Um, I like to ask them what is it that they want from our time together. And I do that in the very first therapy session as well, um, especially if I already have a lot of information about them. So um, there's always this, a bigger goal that they have for themselves. And we just kind of take small parts of that through each session and, and work on those goals. Um, sometimes I feel like clients find this question of what they want for themselves uh, a little bit overwhelming. So mm -hmm. I like to explain that uh, this doesn't have to be a behavioral goal. This is not something that we have to get done. It's more like just really connecting them to um, inviting them to connect to what they really want for themselves, to kind of their heart's desire. If ideal world, what would you want? Um, so we kind of like peeling, uh, and then each session after that is just kind of like peeling off of those layers of, of these like patterns and constrictions kind of get into to that really authentic true self. So that's kind of how I see, really nonlinear. Um, work with, with every healing, as you probably know, it's kind of like up and down, and, and then we go back and then we go forward. It's, it's, there's no really linear path to that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? I hope <laughs> that my clients would say, um, that I am gentle, uh, direct, uh, curious, and engaged. Those are, those are things that come up for me um, and that I always try to um, kind of present in the therapy session. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And when I say cry, I don't mean like bawling, yeah. like, uh, you know, sobbing. I, I mean, just like maybe a few tears. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I am. I don't have any uh, rules around that. Uh, just kind of what happens. I did have a few instances, especially with kind of like when you work with complex trauma, a lot of really sad, difficult stories come up. And, you know, of course, that kind of touches something in me. So I did have moments where um, I would tear up like you said, not, not sobbing or anything like that. But um, yeah, I, I did have those moments. Um, yeah, and laughing as well. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes there's moments that happen within therapy that are just really touching and a mm -hmm. tear or two, in my opinion, is called for, you know. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to have some sort of tough exterior all the time. Um, I think that where it's appropriate, right? I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think these kind of like rules, it's more like something that we learn in school, but then in real life, you work with real people. Uh, things come up and, and of course, we as therapists, we resonate with a lot of these things. Even if we didn't experience that same thing, we know what it's like to be hurt. We know what it's like to grieve. So yeah, I totally agree. There's that well and I, I mean as therapists we have ethics and you know we have Texas what what is it 
the the code in Texas, the occupational code, and you know we have all these things, right? But really, things are never black and white in the work that we do, and the work that we do is mostly in the gray, in my opinion, and I, I think that's where it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so much nuance that it's not that you can't really put in and follow by the book. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's much more nuanced than, than we make it seem in, in school and in rules. Although I, I will say one thing that is black and white is um, obviously don't have sex with your clients, right? I yeah, mean, absolutely. I think there's nothing in the ethics more black and white than that. Um, you know, and even then some people have a hard time with that. But um, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there are very few things that are black and white, but that is definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and so the next question I'm about to ask you is one of my favorites because we all answer dif differently, but we all mean the same thing, really. Mm -hmm. um, how do you define holding space for someone? You know, I really thought about this. I feel like this is very um, therapist question to ask. Totally. <laughs> um, I, holding space for me really means to be there for clients and accept them for who they are, to really allow them to fully be themselves with, with all of their vulnerabilities and hurt and pain and everything that they bring in. Um, I feel like most of us would say non-judgmental, but I think that's pretty expected as a therapist. You're right. It should it, be, yeah. It should be, yeah. We, we Of course, we, we kind of try that all the time. We want to be non-judgmental. Um, yeah, just allowing people to kind of like, again, going back to that curiosity, to be there for themselves, to, to, to not judge themselves, have that compassion that there is a person in front of us. Um, yeah, help them kind of cultivate that self-trust and self-acceptance. Yeah. Okay. Now, what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? And it's okay if it's not from Jill. I'm sure she'll be okay with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she will. Well, you know what? I, I do have one that uh, I did receive from Jill uh, that was really helpful, especially at the beginning where I was kind of struggling, still with my, you know, um, working for the first time as a therapist. Um, so one thing that she told me was to just be my best self, that I don't need to be like anyone else, that I don't need to kind of pretend into this role of a therapist, but that I just need to really show myself and be my best self. And that really helped me. Um, and I think, again, sometimes like we have this idea as we're learning about therapy in school that we need to be a specific way. And there's this image that we have of what a therapist looks like. Um, and it's usually this kind of like cold, detached, rigid. Um, so, that was really helpful to me, just kind of allowing me, kind of almost like giving me that permission to, to do that and be myself. Absolutely. I think it is so important as a therapist to be authentic, you mm -hmm. know, um, yeah. because I, I think, I mean, I'm of the opinion that when we're not authentic, a client can see right through that and like call our bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. um, but then again, I'm also very Rogerian. I'm very into the non-judgment, the unconditional positive regard, you know, authenticity, transparency, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, that is that is really good advice. I do have another one. Yeah. Um, and this didn't come from Jill, but it came from one of the um, NARM therapists from the NARM training. And I thought this was, this was really great. And it was about, um, you know how we constantly, let's say in therapy, you want to be attuned to your client. Right. Um, but they said something along the lines to be um, careful whether we attuning to the child consciousness because sometimes client uh, brings something and it's, let's say their default is um, to cry. That might not be really that there's sadness, right? There might be other feelings that are uh, underneath all of that. Mm -hmm. But if we constantly keep attuning to that, um, to let's say they say that it's sadness at the beginning without really exploration, we're just kind of perpetuating that same story potentially. So really kind of being mindful and being curious again about what, what, where is that coming from? Is it coming from this kind of like adult self, what's happening in the moment, or is this kind of almost like reenacting that old, old wound? So I thought that was really helpful. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's uh, really interesting. Um, it kind of, it, it's very reminiscent, you know, we're talking about um, like more childlike and younger versions of selves. It reminds me a lot of like parts work too. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. I did some IFS trainings in the past, and um, I feel like that's that's language that naturally at least comes up for me, uh, because yeah, we, we are kind of thinking in parts of ourselves. There's different parts at different times, and and uh, kind of like the shadow part as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it does remind me of that as well. So, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice so far? Mm -hmm. Um, one big learning point for me was um, listening to myself and always trying to make decisions from an authentic choice and uh, from that place of what feels true to me and not really go with that fear, uh, not kind of making decisions from that fearful place um, and really thinking long term, is this something that's going to um, that I'm going to value a year from now? Is this something in the moment that's going to appease me, but it's not really kind of uh, purposeful or meaningful? So really trusting myself with, with decisions and doing what feels true to me. That's a, a big, big thing to learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I keep, keep learning that. <laughs> it's not yeah, a, I mean, it, it's uh, a perpetual process. It's not just yeah. a, a learn and you're done type of thing. Yeah, there, there are always uh, new challenges coming up that that kind of pushed me to, to keep doing that. So what do you do to take care of yourself? And is there one thing after a really hard day that you just absolutely have to do for yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I try to be really intentional with how I spend my time. I think that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, I, I kind of have uh, professional things that I do that keep me in the learning mode and the group that I meet with, um, it kind of helps me work through some of the cases. Of course, I meet with my supervisor. Um, so there are things professionally. And then personally, uh, something that really helps me is just having a morning routine, uh, taking care of myself first thing in the morning kind of going back to, to my intention for myself that day, how do I want to show up for my clients, for my husband, friends, um, journaling, like I mentioned, that's something that I do daily, 
um, again, helps me that connecting with myself and being more at peace and from the present moment. Um, what else? Spending time in nature. I don't know if there's one thing. Um, I just try to do things consistently so I don't get into that burnout state. Um, really having fun outside of therapy, uh, finding time for personal interests and things like that. That really helps me. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. How would you define happiness? This is a good one. It's a hard question. It is a hard question. Yeah. Um, I think happiness is, is almost like a byproduct of, of living uh, purposefully and meaningfully. Um, oftentimes when I hear, I just want to be happy, um, I kind of have an issue with that because I think the happiness itself is not so much the goal, but I think it already happens if we're doing things that feel true, feel authentic to us. Um, if we live, uh, if we lead a meaningful life, I think happiness will be there. And of course, that doesn't mean that everything will go great um, and we will have challenges and all of that, but that knowing that I will be okay. And I, and I know that I'm on my path. Kind of that to me, what, what happiness is. Good answer. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that happiness isn't like a final state that's achieved and then you're just happy forever. You know, like right. yeah. it, it's fleeting. It comes and goes, you know, it's not, it's not a state of being. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So the next couple questions are some more vulnerable questions, as if this whole thing hasn't been vulnerable already. Um, <laughs> more vulnerability. <laughs> but um, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician so far? Oh, gosh, you know, I was thinking about this and I was like, I don't think it happened yet. And that kind of scared me a little bit. <laughs> um, but I did have a moment that was kind of pretty embarrassing at the time, uh, but I could see the absurdity in it as well. Uh, this didn't happen during the therapy session, but when I worked with adolescents at the high school, um, I had to work with their parents as well. So at one point, and this was the time that I was super uncomfortable speaking on the phone, I still don't like it. I hate but, phone calls. I'm right there. Oh right my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's nothing worse. Anyways, I'm sure there are other things worse. <laughs> So that was, that was one of my challenges. And um, I called this parent. Um, I'm not even sure about what, probably to, to make an appointment or something like that. And they didn't answer. So uh, I attempted to leave a voicemail. And <laughs> this voicemail sounded something like, well, okay, you can call me back. Um, actually, I will email you. Well, I, I'm not sure if I have your email. So maybe you can email me. Uh, you, well, do you have my email? And he went on and on. <laughs> and I put the phone down and I was like, what the hell did I just say? I don't even know if I did leave a voicemail. It was just, it was one of those, I don't know what happened. Hopefully they are going to fire me. Um, yeah, but almost immediately I was like, that was, that was hilarious. Um, and I could actually laugh about it. I was like, okay. I've been there. I'm I'm right there with you. Totally been there on multiple occasions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <is> my nemesis. 
Now, my my second vulnerable question, which really isn't that vulnerable, but um, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Uh, yes, yes. I've been in therapy uh, several times in the past, and I currently am as well. I have my own therapist, who's awesome. also an arm therapist, which is kind of something that I was looking for. I wanted to have that perspective as a client and, and have that experience. So, yeah, great. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Well, Slaja, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Uh, I think this covers it. Yeah, can't really think of anything else that I would like to add. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Callie Lawrence, licensed professional counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of interest, self-compassion for cynics. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.